I think it's helped me become a better listener. I think it's helped me understand people a little bit better. I think it's helped grow compassion in me. Um, but it's also just a really good feeling to mm. go there. That was Eli Schramm, a 17-year-old high school student, audio engineer, rap singer, songwriter, and the volunteer at Samaritans of Boston for over two years. He started his journey there when he was just 16 years old. I remember hearing about it for the first time and not knowing how to respond or react to that. So instead, I decided to respect Eli's decision, but paid close attention to his journey that, in my opinion, required so much patience, courage, and compassion. Eli opens up with an intro of a rap song he wrote. This part is explicit, but only for the first five minutes of the show. Then we dive into this topic of adolescent is really kind of an existential crisis of many people. And Eli's advice for not only his peers, but many of us who are beyond adolescent but still feel the struggle with our creative voice, constant attempt to fit in, and never feeling at ease with our choices. How much do we really know about ourselves? Though we live through our experience, oftentimes we can't see ourselves. In that sense, we almost know nothing about ourselves. Eli refers to that as myself is in flux all the time. We talk about his appreciation for music, of course, and why we all live for art. Art really is what humanity did after we fulfilled our basic needs. Art can be anything, music, speech, video games, painting, novel. The purpose of art is trying to construct meaning, or maybe find meaning, or to make meaning somehow. Eli said, art is living. He may be 17, but Eli has shared wisdom all of us can benefit from to reflect upon. You are listening to the Face World Podcast. This is your host, Fei Wu. I share stories from sung and unsung heroes who are just like you and me, who are willing to share their views of the world, deconstruct their success stories that are relatable, applicable. Show notes, tools, and resources are on my website at phaseworld.com. That is F-E-I-S-W-O-R-L-D. If you like this episode, please check out the other ones also on my podcast. The best gift you could ever give me any time of the year is a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or a podcast source of your choice. I also welcome that you share my podcast, Face World, with families and friends. Now, on to my conversation with Eli Schwamm. So, welcome to the Phase World podcast, Eli Schwamm. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. I am so psyched to have you on my show because you are going to be the youngest guest probably for a little while. Cool. Yeah. So, you know, I um, right before this, I probably give my audience a little bit of an intro. And I thought, you know, why are you so interesting to talk to is because you're a rapper. You are a rapper who also writes rap music and you're really into music production and you have many other lines of work that simply is astonishing to me. Um, the things you get into, the to me, part of that is um, is bravery, you know, and um, to be at peace with so many uncertainties in one's life. Um, much senior to you, there are things that I struggle with that I oftentimes come to you for advice. So that probably <laughs> sounds very scary to my guests right now. Like, why is a 30-year-old <laughs> going to a 17-year-old uh, for advice? But many reasons why I want to interview you. But 
you know, how would you like to introduce you uh, yourself to my audience? I'm curious. <laughs> um, well, I'll start with a rap. How's that? Nothing is <laughs> right. better. So all this is a rap that I wrote partially about like the quest to finding one's identity. <clears throat> and I'll do it. It has a beat, but I'll do it a cappella here. Some motherfucker's gonna call itself Discovery. I'm just trying to uncover the thing that stands between me and something we call true art. And I'm not gonna wait for the blues to start. And I'm not gonna wait for the faith to start. I don't wanna find starvation looking for inspiration. I'm me here right now just trying to say my part. Yeah, I guess it might sound boring. And yeah, I guess it might sound corny. But I'm not gonna say that I've been living sorely and I'm not gonna tell anybody else's story. And frankly, there's no killing in mine. And lately, I stopped killing my mind. And I'm just trying to say my feelings and rhymes and hope somebody takes some here and I'm time. Maybe it's madness, but I don't think I need sadness to make magic. And if this happens, I guess I'm satisfied to find that I'm something more than average. So I'ma keep rapping till I reach this. And I'ma keep performing in my hall that's seatless. I don't wanna add fake weight to my baggage for other folk to feel deep when they hear it. My career is, well, non existent. I'm only the kid who don't give up because he's persistent. I don't want to rap for subsistence. I just want to think, succinct shit, sit down and ink it. So if you're looking for my motherfucking mission, well, there's my motherfucking mission. Wow. In an empty room, I need to clap on behalf of everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So uh, the, yeah. the purpose of that is basically to say that, like, I think art is one of the places where a lot of people are expected to know themselves completely. Mm. Um, and I think... One, like inconsistency is one of the biggest criticisms of an artist uh, and I think that's silly I think that's uh, I think it's unfounded because part of the purpose of art I think is to explore yourself a little bit and to figure out mm. what do you represent and I don't even know if you have a real fixed identity the way we think people do necessarily mm. mm -hmm. so I think expecting that out of art is is not necessary detrimental right. even I think not only to art, even expecting that from anybody, uh, from themselves as a student, right? Yeah. You probably noticed this. I still remember from my school years, if I scored a 98 or 100 out of 100, then the next time I need to beat that somehow, I need to mm -hmm. peak that constantly. Well, it's you know? like all the time we say to people, oh, this isn't you. Mm. Um, but the question that I always ask is what is you other than than your actions and your and your mindset and all of those things. If people say you're not acting like yourself today, mm -hmm. well, what is acting like yourself? Mm-hmm. That do people really know that about yourself? Mm -hmm. um, actually, that's a that's a really interesting question. Do you? We, we get into philosophical topics here pretty quickly. But, <laughs> <laughs> do you think we actually know everything about ourselves? And how much? I guess how much of that can be quantified to say that we actually do know about ourselves? I think it, I guess it depends what you mean by knowing about mm -hmm. yourself. Um, I mean, I'm the only one that can see from through my eyes, from my perspective. So in that sense, I have a very good idea of my experience. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, um, I mean, I was with my therapist the other day, and one of the things he said to me is the biggest advantage I have is that I'm not you. Mm. Even though I live through my own experience, I most of the time can't really see it. Mm -hmm. outside of myself because mm -hmm. you know because because i'm in i'm inside my own head mm -hmm. i think that's true for everyone so in that sense we have almost no idea about ourselves mm -hmm. um and i think the other question that that this brings up for me is what is the self that we're supposed to know um i mean even in the last four or five years i think i've changed physically dramatically i've changed emotionally and intellectually pretty mm -hmm. dramatically um and though there's there's contiguity between my past the past iterations of myself and myself as i currently appear mm -hmm. i i don't think that there is th that i am the same mm -hmm. as i was before so how do i know myself i think that who myself is in flux all the time it's hard to actually know myself at any point mm -hmm. i i would agree because you know, even going through adulthood from my mid-20s till 30, when you look at the years, it's just four or five years, right? But people do change very drastically. Um, I disagree with that point of view. When I was 26, I'm like, I'm already an adult. I, I don't see myself, you know, kind of transforming or transcending through this period. But it's, it's very true. And, you know, I guess, you know, one of the, the desire I had 
to have you on the show is I recall when I was your age, possibly a little bit younger, 14, 15, I remember going through a pretty serious struggle. And at that time, I very much thought that I was alone, you know, and only did I discover much later on that, you know, it's to your point, your body, everything, appearance and your knowledge, everything's changing is a a period of great uncertainty. Mm -hmm. So that's why I want to bring your voice to the crowd and, you know, um, I mean, and in the last couple of years, I, I can only speak from my experience, but I think it's pretty common. In the last couple of years, I there have been a lot of things that I've had to face that are pretty scary, like big nebulous ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them is like mortality is something that, I mean, I don't pretend to have faced and <laughs> conquered mortality. More that when I when you're little, mm-hmm. you don't really think, you, you, you don't really understand mm-hmm. what death is. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why when, you're, when your pet fish dies, your parents say, oh, he's just sleeping, because that makes sense. Right. Um, and I think that as you become a teenager and then reach into adulthood, you have to sort of confront these various things. It's at a certain point. Mortality is one of them. Um, mortality of people in that people will be born and die, but also mortality of, you know, of relationships, mm-hmm. of situations, right? You can be very well off financially, for example. Oh, but you always have to know that that is not permanent. Mm-hmm. Um, that will at some point you know, you won't be in the same position financially or um, socially mm. as you were before. Uh, and it's really easy to get totally scared and frightened by these big concepts. And no one, even the adults who have mm-hmm. experienced these things for years, typically don't have particularly great things to say to suddenly alleviate all of your pain and, you know, squash all your fears. Mm. Because I think then people wouldn't still struggle with these ideas. Mm-hmm. Um Adolescence is kind of like a giant existential crisis in some senses. And I think that's why so many people struggle with it. Yeah, very much so. And sometimes that fear carries through in their 20s and sometimes into their 30s. And there's something very fundamental about fear. And some of that is, um, are the things that we grew up with. Mm-hmm. You know, after my dad passed away, I've shared that, um, you know, you're one of the inspirations that kind of inspire me to seek help you know, from elsewhere. And for the first time in my life as a 26-year-old, I seek help from a professional, a Mm -hmm. shrink. And, you know, almost was like a secret act on my behalf, you know, (laughs) after work, lunchtime. But it was so, such a tremendous amount of help Mm -hmm. for me. Yeah, I mean, the analogy that everyone says at this point is that like, oh, if you had a heart condition, you'd go to the cardiologist. If you're struggling emotionally or mentally, you'd go to a therapist. Mm -hmm. Um, I think also it's just really, it's just really helps to have someone who can be a sounding board mm-hmm. for some of the things that you're struggling with. I think the sign, in my opinion, the sign of a really good therapist mm-hmm. is someone who doesn't have to take on a distinct personality in conversation with them, but rather acts as a mirror for you to look at your own personality, for you to make your own judgments. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the one of the biggest troubles about going to sometimes about going to friends and family mm-hmm. when you're struggling emotionally and mentally is that they always approach you as themselves, mm-hmm. um, and that can be difficult. Mm-hmm. I mean, it works for all different kinds of people. So I don't mean to say that that using your family and friends as a resource is bad. No, it, mm-hmm. it absolutely is wonderful. Mm-hmm. But I think that you can run into issues when. You really need to look at yourself, and instead you look at yourself through your friend's eyes. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they, um, with friends and family, sometimes they too quickly jump into conclusion. Yeah. They do have the their best interest in you, and therefore sometimes they only see one side of the coin as a result. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. You know, just out of curiosity, I, because I feel like your parents are very open-minded um, about, you know... I think when you were growing up in different situations, they're probably comfortable. They are medical professions, professionals themselves, you know. Yeah. And I was wondering in this society, possibly in middle school, high school, are there opportunities where people, advisors that students could go to, for instance, if whether 
they don't know what it is, what the benefits are, or if their family don't support them, where it's a yeah. financial thing. Of course, of course. I mean, their therapists tend to be very expensive, no doubt. Um, and a lot of therapy isn't covered by most insurance plans. Mm. Um, so it is it is tough. It's, a, it's really a luxury um, to have, one that I appreciate. But I think that there are resources at a lot of schools. Most schools have a counselor. Um, my school happens, I happen to have a wonderful counselor. Mm -hmm. Um, she's new this year, but she's an excellent person. Um, I think it's difficult because a lot of, I think a lot of the people in the world who need someone to, to be, you know, a therapist like individual for them don't have access to it. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, areas that are war torn, for example, those, those resources don't exist mm -hmm. um, and honestly those are the people that probably need it the most mm. um, areas that are severely impoverished that's another example mm. so it's tough yeah uh, and there is no easy solution that i can think of but and that's why friends and family i think become that role and i think it's amazing how good of a job friends and family can do mm. at being emotional and mental support but i guess what i would say is that there's always the first thing that one has to do in order to accept mental and emotional support is set aside pride. Um, and that's something that I've had to do many a times and I'm not pretending that it's easy for me or that I do it willingly. Um, but it is really worthwhile, I think, to, to be able to do that, to, to practice that actively. How do you practice? Um, well, I think, you ca it's not something that you can necessarily do on a daily basis. You just have to wait until the opportunity presents itself, I think. Mm -hmm. um, until you experience something that is embarrassing, that is shameful. Mm -hmm. um, and it is very easy to be angry and upset about that. And for the most part, you w just people will be. Mm -hmm. I think it would be hypocritical if I said that I'm not angry and upset when I feel embarrassed. But... I think to once that first feeling passes, because it will pass eventually, to look back on it and really look back on it with open eyes and ask yourself, did I handle this the best way? So for example, the other day I was driving and I was driving in my brother's car uh, actually and the I realized that I drove some time with the headlights off when it was at night. Mm -hmm. That's like a pretty rookie mistake driving wise. Mm -hmm. um, I was very embarrassed about that. I actually, I found out because someone else told me. My gut reaction was to be angry at that person to be like, oh, fuck you, it's none of your business, <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, and under my breath, when they couldn't hear, that's kind of what I did. Mm -hmm. But later I looked back and I realized that they were actually potentially saving me from a dangerous situation. In some senses, I'm really, I'm really indebted to that person. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think looking back, looking backwards and saying, oh, this is an example when I needed to set aside my pride, that's how you practice. Because then the duration of the angry reaction mm -hmm. becomes shorter. Mm -hmm. And the moment in time when you can be appreciative and grateful mm -hmm. becomes larger. And then when you're faced with a circumstance where you need someone else's help and you don't want to admit it, mm -hmm. it's much easier to do so, I think. I, I feel like I'm also in the trenches at times to not be able to reflect upon myself, my mm -hmm. daily experiences. And one of the beauties I'm finding out through podcasting with my guests is I'm almost, you know, uh, for a second I need to brag that kind of creating that environment um, at times you could say is a little artificial, but mm -hmm. for us to come together and really share and really reflect upon Sure. Um, you know, I think pausing and and then I know recently that you had the opportunity to practice meditation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I want you to talk about that for sure. a second. You, you might be the youngest person in that room, possibly. Or uh, Not quite, actually, because there are a couple other people from my from my class. There. Oh. So my English teacher uh, opened up a Zen meditation group and he encouraged us to come if we want to, though he put no pressure on us. He's the kind of guy that you very much get the feeling that he respects your choices. So I think What's it worked his well. His name is um, Mr. Felicky. Oh, nice. He's an English teacher in Newton North. Um, so I went for the first time. Um, one of the things that I'm very bad at is sitting still. 
I tend to, you know, like jiggle a foot or, you know, tap my hands or click my pen, much to the annoyance of uh, other people sometimes. Mm -hmm. But so when I try to, you know, I, meditation is something that I've read about that's always been fascinating to me. So I've always wanted to try it. Um, and when I do try, for the most part, I can't. I, you know, I'm, within a few minutes, I feel very jittery and my whole, I have to feel like I have to tense my muscles and I get this feeling in like, in my chest mm. of this, like, uh, I almost call it, like, it almost feels like there's like a fire burning in my chest that's like slowly expanding to the rest of my it's body. so funny. I, um, we just came back from a meditation workshop. This is in between your third and your fourth chakra and it represents the element of fire. <laughs> <laughs> what that's funny. Um, so, yeah, so I had to, so I sat. Uh, we we did a sitting meditation. We did some walking meditations, which were easier for me because, mm -hmm. you know, there's motion involved. But mm -hmm. the sitting meditation lasted 25 minutes. And I would say that within the first five minutes, I was, I was like sweating <laughs> and I was, it was so uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. um, but the, this like fiery feeling sort of spread and spread. And then after a while, it extinguished itself. Mm -hmm. um, and from that point onwards, I think it was really easy mm -hmm. to just sit. Um, and one of the things that that definitely taught for me is that all kinds of, you know, pleasurable, comfortable feelings, uncomfortable feelings, painful, you know, all, all these, this variety of emotions that we feel, mm -hmm. they all will stay with us for a time and then pass. Mm -hmm. And at the, in the moment of excruciating pain, mm -hmm. it is so easy to think, this is going to be forever. Yeah. Even if you don't intellectually think that, but your whole body believes, mm -hmm. you know, that you will be in this pain forever. Mm. And the truth is you won't. Mm -hmm. uh, and that it never, it never will last forever. And that just that knowledge, holding that with you, can make it a lot easier to bear pain and uh, physical, mental, or emotional. Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of the teenagers I've met um, over the years, uh, in particular, I guess the age of, say, 13 to 17, you get a little bit better as you become an older teen, but it's just a, an anxiety and just in today's day and age, we expect everything happen simultaneously. Um, and even I look back for someone my age, when I was a child, I was forced to have some level of patience. Right. There's no Amazon Prime online shopping. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if something I, I needed to get that happened to be in Hong Kong, then I need to wait for two weeks, a month yeah. for it to arrive. Sure, and, sure. You know, and, you know, I, I, I just find it to be kind of fascinating that for some reason, it's not just technology alone. Do you think it's, do you think it's parenting? Do you think is it the exposure of, of crime? I mean, 20, 30 years ago, it's, it's okay in this, in this wonderful neighborhood that we're in, Newton, that you can have little kids running around. They can walk themselves to school, but it rarely happens now. You know, everybody kind of lives in, in, in fear. Not so much here, yeah. but certainly in many other neighborhoods. Sure. Um, I don't 100% know. In fact, I don't really know at all. Mm -hmm. But I, I mean, if, if I had to guess... I would say that part of it has to do with just how much you hear about. Because mm -hmm. um, whenever something really tragic happens, everyone in the world hears about it. Mm -hmm. And there are so many more people in the world than mm -hmm. there were even just 20 or 30 years ago. Um, so there's, just looking at it from a mathematical, statistical perspective, it's extremely likely that there will be tragedies at almost any point in time yeah. all around the world. Uh, and I think it is really easy to think that the world is kind of going to hell. Mm -hmm. um, I know that I often feel that way, mm -hmm. especially after these, uh, after the the several um, deaths of African American mm -hmm. uh, individuals for you know by by police officers. I think the the most the Eric Garner one mm -hmm. uh, for me that really set me on a path of feeling like, wow the world is just getting worse mm -hmm. as a place. Mm -hmm. um, I think the biggest problem with thinking that way is that we are far too limited in our perspective to be able to make such giant conclusions about the nature of the world as a whole. Mm -hmm. um, and 
it is you can believe you can spend your life believing that the world is getting worse mm -hmm. and no one's going to stop you mm -hmm. but you just don't have there's no way that you can really make that conclusion without assuming mm -hmm. uh, and i think that that's a dangerous assumption to make because it can lead to a lot of really a lot of really negative experiences on the assumer's part yeah and limitations on opportunities and a lot of parents especially when they have young kids I understand that desire, uh, temptation to kind of force feed that information onto the kids. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it's every parent's worst nightmare to have something terrible happen to their kids. Everyone just wants their kids to be safe, and that's beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't mean to say that that's not a, a, a good feeling to have, you know, because you want to nurture and protect. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know what the way the line should be. I think the line has gotten closer and closer to home yeah. as time has progressed yeah uh you know you don't if you see a kid even like you said in a place like newton if you see a kid wandering around with no adult with them you immediately that rings that that's a red flag mm -hmm. i don't know if it would have been that way you know 20 30 years ago exactly um so i don't know yeah good answer though um especially when you said the word statistically i was instantly convinced <laughs> Just, um one area uh i feel like feels like we're jumping the topic a little bit but i was gonna say recently and i realize it's not so recent anymore because you've been going at it for about a year now that a year ago when you're only 16 you started volunteering at the samaritans and uh, you know i had a very mixed feeling Knowing you, you know, watching you grow up, I had a very mixed feeling of even that's something that I wouldn't, that didn't really come onto my radar, even though personally I've experienced, mm -hmm. um, you know, not super close friends committing uh, suicide, but sure. um, young people. Uh, I remember when I was doing in college, I found out that three um, of the kids from my high school committed suicide yeah. um, a year younger than I was at the time. So, yeah. Um, tell us about your, how did you find them? How did you, how the opportunity even come about? So the story of how I found it, sporting event or something like that, and there was this uh, exposition of a bunch of different groups in the community. Um, and each had a little array of candy that, you know, to, in to approach the booth. So I went to the booth that had the best candy, which is the <laughs> Nestle Carnative from Samaritans. So I was intrigued. I guess the Crunch Bar served its purpose closer to two years. Mm. But it's it's been a really important... I think it's helped me become a better listener. I think it's helped me understand people a little bit better. I think it's helped grow compassion in me. Um, but it's also just a really good feeling to mm. go there. Wow. Um, I, I think this is so good. I, I was, that was my next question. Yeah, sure. I, mm. I really feel like I'm useful there. Mm. I think we want people to appreciate us. We want people to love us, to, to value our existence. Mm. Uh, actually some of the most deeply disturbed callers talk about feeling like they have no purpose, feeling like nobody needs them and nobody wants them. Um, and that is really why we're there, is to just listen and be compassionate and try to sh express to people that, you know, there is, there are people who still want them there and people who need them and people who care about them. Um, what are your roles there? Like, if you walk, uh, you know, you're there all the time, I feel like, you know, we got <laughs> to schedule this interview around your volunteering, uh, uh -huh. you know, opportunities there. So could you walk me through what is it like to, to show up? What, what do you do? Sure, yeah. yeah. So it's on the fourth floor of a small office just outside of Chinatown mm -hmm. in Boston. Um, and it has one room full of all the, the call receiver people, which is really nice because that fosters a real community amongst the people who are taking calls on your shift. Um, and then there's a one room of administrative people and there's a room of people who do uh, instant messaging support. Wow. So, yeah, which is like, I don't even know how they do that. That's, it's, the phone already feels a little bit detached. I don't know how they do it via the computer, but they do. 
Mm. Um, I would say as for the, there's really only three-ish positions that you can have. You can be a member of the staff, which is pretty limited. So, because we're funded by, you know, public grants. Um, and, or you can be a volunteer either for the IM service or for the phone lines. Um, and there's a range of people that do it, which is really wonderful. There's men, women, uh, young individuals like myself, older people. So it really does feel like a, like a, like, like everyone is represented. Um, which is nice. So how many people are on the floor, like full time? I don't know if there's any... Full-time employees. Sure, yeah, no, it totally changes. It totally changes. Mm -hmm. Um, We're open 24-7. So Mm -hmm. sometimes at like 2 in the morning on a Wednesday, Uh it's going to be pretty desolate. There's probably going to be one person there taking calls. Mm -hmm. Um, On uh, Saturday or Sunday morning, Mm -hmm. there's going to be as many as 6 or 7, sometimes even 8 people there. But there's never like 30 or 40 people. We just don't have the infrastructure to support it. So it's an area that we can explore a little bit because to give people a sense of the traffic, the amount of the volume of the call that are coming in, mm-hmm. do you think you have enough people to cover? Or oh, no, not at all. Wow. Um, we answer about 40% of the calls that come in, and that's doing really well. Yeah. Um, we get on a busy shift. We have six or seven people getting back-to-back calls for the mm-hmm. entire uh, three or four hour period. Mm-hmm. Um, and granted, I think it's important to mention that not all of the people, in fact, a small percentage of the people that call are actually uh, what we what we call imminently suicidal. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been at Samaritans for like two years. I've answered hundreds of calls mm-hmm. and I've had only you know five or six calls from people who at that moment in time, we are concerned that they are going to try to take their life. Mm. Um, what we get a lot more of is people who have been struggling, uh, people who call, you know, once or twice a week that have been struggling for years, uh, and that need a place to, to vent a place to be, we try to be that mirror that I was talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a policy, a strict policy actually of not giving any advice, mm. um, for two reasons. One is that we don't know we're not. We, we're, you know, we're very removed from these people's lives and we don't know what the best course of action is almost ever. Mm-hmm. Um, the only advice we do give is advice on how to keep people safe. If they are look, if, you know, if they are indicating that they're going to try to take their life. Mm-hmm. Um, the other policy that we have is that we're really there to listen and be supportive. So we always believe whatever the callers tell us, um, even if it's something that we know isn't true, mm-hmm. like, I'm, if someone were to say, oh, I'm Barack Obama's, you know, lover or something <laughs> like that, then you know, the point is you have to believe them because a lot of people that call are alienated. Um, there are people who suffer from mental illness that gives them, you know, that makes them b- truly believe things that nobody else believes, like Barack Obama lover thing. That's not an actual <laughs> example. But, but um and, and we, a lot of times people just need to be heard and listened to. And that's really what we exist for. Mm-hmm. How, long, how long typically are each one of the phone calls? And, and I wonder how people's mode and of operation, mm-hmm. or that, as long as much as you could detect change from beginning sure. to the end. So the thing is, this is actually one of our most controversial policies. That we end every phone call after 10 minutes unless... There is concern that the person is about to end their life, in which case we continue the phone call until we know that person's safe. Mm -hmm. But every other phone call, no matter how much someone is struggling, we end after 10 minutes. And that's tough. And sometimes it's awful. And you're in the middle of talking with someone. And we always give people a minute warning, but you're in the middle of talking with someone and they're starting to open up. And then their time is up. We always encourage people to call back, but we just wouldn't be able to answer any 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 calls. We'd answer like three calls a day and mm-hmm. three calls a shift instead yeah. of like thirty. Yeah. Um. So it's hard, and in many ways, that points to I think the fact that there is no. The, the work that we do is rooted in pragmatism. 
Uh, I would love to say that I, you know, that I save lives there. I don't think that's true. I think I just am a person who listens. And that's all we are. We're a person, we're people who listen um, for, for 10 minutes, for as long as we can spare until someone else needs to be listened to. So as a result, I realized uh, there were a lot of uh, much of my curiosity in the Seward Swift's questions of this particular domain. And I feel like if I want to learn more, you know, perhaps one day I should stop by and I don't know what the policy mm-hmm. is around. I don't actually know either. Um, but I do know that they have a website. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like SamaritansHope.org. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it has all kinds of information. They have a lot of different services. They also offer... Uh, where they will have people drive out to your home if you have a loved one who's committed yeah. suicide mm-hmm. and provide you with support. They have support groups for that kind of situation. So they have all different kinds of services. Um, and all of them are actually well described in the mm-hmm. in the website. Uh, I don't know. I, I could I, I could always look into like having a guest there, but I don't know. Uh, I heard great things about it. And unfortunately, one of my coworkers suffered from... Um in an event um, with a yeah. family member and sure. he informed me that um, Samaritans are super helpful when it comes to support group mm-hmm. um, to a degree that they didn't even expect that they didn't know what to expect and they were very yeah. surprised so you know the even before your volunteering role as Samaritans you had spoken up very early on in your life if I remember correctly 12 13 years old and we talk about wanting to be helpful um, to other people mm-hmm. in your life, and I feel like this may not this might not even be uh, you know an accident. I think it's mm-hmm. it's done almost on purpose. I think I definitely I stumbled into it by accident. I think mm-hmm. I I you know because it was a it, I had to do like a twenty four hour training period plus another nine hours of listening to calls mm-hmm. um, in order to. Uh, in order to actually start working there. Mm-hmm. So it is, and I, I owe them, because I went through that training, I, I owe them nine months of three hours a week. So I've fulfilled that at this point. But So it was it was a big commitment. Um, so I was, I wanted to do it. And I think I wanted to do it because of, you know, what I said before, and that I think it's a, a fundamental human desire to be wanted. Mm-hmm. And one of the best ways to be wanted is to be helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, I know... I feel really, I, I think I get as much out of feeling helpful as the person whom I've helped, sometimes more even, to be honest. Mm, wow. um, and, you know, it, it, it works as it's a pretty positive cycle because when you help a lot of people, mm-hmm. I mean, this is, guys, it sounds like, it sounds like something that you'd read in like a kindergarten book, but it's true. Mm-hmm. When you help a lot of people, they're much more willing to help you when you're struggling. Mm-hmm. Um and the biggest difference, I think, is that everyone will help someone if it's convenient. Mm-hmm. It's, I think, when it's inconvenient, who helps you is who you know are your real friends. I completely echo that. I mean, I remember, this was maybe a year ago, that we, there was a survey at work. And to talk about, you literally circle 1 to 10, how do you feel about these questions? And mm-hmm. one of the reasons was, what makes you love most about your job? And at the beginning, there are questions about, you know, I'm learning something new. I like my clients. I get to experience all these like cutting edge technologies. And remember, the last question was because I'm able to help others. I'm able to help people. Yeah. And it came to me as, my goodness, that's a 10 for me. And Mm -hmm. I remember I'm almost curious enough to ask other people. And I did speak to a few of my friends. And that was the same thing for them. Yeah. You know, I realized my the beauty of me going to work to say that, that's interesting. If it could just be a coworker of mine who's not even working on my project. Yeah. Be like, do you know how to solve that Excel problem? The problem itself could be completely insignificant, but yeah, I love that. And those moments, those are the moments I always cherish for. Yeah. So it's and absolutely it's true. It's making that human connection that yeah. I think is really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to really help people who are, who are struggling. Like I've been yeah. trying to solve the problem for two weeks now. Yeah. And you're like, oh, I'm familiar and with And it's this. so much, it's so much when you are on top of the world and feeling great, mm-hmm. it does not take that much energy to help someone for the most part. I mean, there are some, some truly intractable problems, mm-hmm. but for the most part, you can, you can lift a finger and 
make a pretty sizable difference in someone's life. Mm -hmm. And then when you are in the other end and you are devastated and you have no energy to spare, mm -hmm. that other person lifting a finger for you mm -hmm. will will make a huge difference for you. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I suspect that um, my audience right now could be people span across a pretty big age difference there. Could be mm -hmm. teenagers, 20s, 30s, possibly older. What is that message, looking back to what you didn't know when you were younger, 12, 13, to what you do now? Or like the struggles that we all have. I still have my own struggles, um, you know. What is the message that you could potentially send out to someone your age or younger or older? Sure. You know? Um, when I was littler, I spent a lot of my time trying to figure out how to become an adult and trying to convince myself that I was an adult. Um, I've since given up on the quest, mainly because as far as I see it at the moment, nobody is really an adult. People are just varying levels of kids. Mm. What I mean by that is no one really has everything figured out. Um, and everyone is just sort of stumbling through life together. Mm -hmm. I think as soon as, you, as soon as you stop trying to convince yourself that you have everything figured out and trying to figure out everything, you can spend a lot more time living. Mm. That's very deep. I was listening to Jonathan Fields about the quest of becoming your own mentor, your own guru. Mm -hmm. You know, oftentimes when we're younger, I don't know, movie star, singer, sure. When we're older, I look at work to very accomplished people. And, you know, Matt Lindley's a really good example, someone that your your brother looks up to very mm -hmm. much so. Sure. Um, it's much easier for us to say, that is the guy I want to be, or that is, that is the person I want to be when I grow up. Yeah. And, but to your point, it's like, what if we seek for inner peace and seek for the, the best person we could be um, and mm -hmm. respect our talents and but also limitations yeah well one of the things that attracted me towards the meditation thing that I did um, was the philosophy associated with it and one of the key doctrines of the Zen Buddhist philosophy is that you have everything you need to be happy already it's, you don't have to go and get anything. Mm -hmm. You have everything you need to be happy already. And that is easy to confuse with laziness. You know, to say, oh, you can just chill and, you know, eat chips and, and watch TV all day. And that's, and then, and you don't need to go and get anything. Um, I think that's not the point. I think the point is rather that you don't need to, getting that next promotion or getting that a or you know getting that new car or finding that perfect uh, significant other mm -hmm. in order to be happy and that's actually more that it's actually the process it's the living uh, that is the happiness it's the looking for the car or the girlfriend or the new job mm -hmm. that is that should be the happiness the process is the journey. Yeah. It's not just an event or a destination. And I, I think the key to knowing if you're on the right path is if you spend your whole, all this time and energy, whatever, going through the, the process and then you fail, everyone's going to be bummed when they fail. Mm -hmm. But if you look back and genuinely believe that the entire process was a waste of time, then it was a waste of time even if you succeeded. Interesting. Wow. Dichotomies. <laughs> it's very deep. We didn't really get a chance to touch upon. We open up with your, with the raps on that you sang. And I've had the luxury uh, to experience the bootleg version of your album with a series of songs. And, <laughs> you know, I recently attended an event at um, Auburndale Library that was an event that was brilliant, by the way, hosted by, Thank you. you know, a few kids from Newton North mm -hmm. for people to come together and just play an instrument, sing a song for you, mm -hmm. you're rapping. And I feel like that that, that is something that has something to do with your um, mentality and your growth mm. of how do you feel when you when you rap? What does it enable you to do or to feel or to connect with the world in a unique sure. way. 
I mean, more generally, I think it's that it's about art. Um, I think that I love to feel like I'm producing art. Uh, and when you look at it, art is really what humanity did after we fulfilled our basic needs of, you know, food, shelter, water, that kind of thing. Uh, and I think that you can really look at anything that, you know, me, whether it be music or, or a speech or a video game or as opposed to your, your traditional kind of like painting, uh, novel, all that stuff is art. Mm. Um, and I think the purpose of art is to is to f try to construct meaning or maybe find meaning but i'm more of the belief that you construct meaning mm -hmm. um it's like the building blocks is the yeah. process of because i mean we're 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 here and we if you make the purpose of your life to uh stay alive and reproduce as is the purpose of life for most other species then you're gonna be pretty bored because we we exist in a time when that is easy and for the most part readily available. Right. Um, but if so, you have to find something else. You have to find something else to occupy yourself. Um, and we do that with education, but presumably education, so that we can move to something mm -hmm. that is in in its own way an art. Mm -hmm. So if you're a doctor, that's the art of medicine. If you're a Computer programmer. Mm -hmm. That is the art of computer programming. You're doing something that is more than what you need to do. Mm -hmm. uh, and the purpose of that is to is to find meaning somehow or to make meaning somehow. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why we live, I think. That's why we keep living. Mm -hmm. Because we're not living to assure the continuation of the human species. We're actually doing just about everything we can to ensure the destruction of the human species right now. Yeah. Um, so we live for art, I think. So this is definitely like the answer. And um, you kind of turn around very artistically to say that how did you come across rapping? Who inspired you? Sure. You know? um, so I, I've always loved music. Even when I was like a, a very little kid, I was just, you know, Music is something that touches me. Saxophone, uh, which you play. Yeah, I played saxophone for many years, and I mm -hmm. something I plan to return to later mm -hmm. in life. Uh, Hip-hop in, in and of itself, I think um, Adam, mm -hmm. who, for the people who don't know me, is my uncle. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and I think my brother also mm -hmm. were the two people that got me, that exposed me to it first. Mm -hmm. um, and since then... It's something that I've explored a lot on my own and that I found a real connection with. I think that hip-hop is a unique opportunity to do two things. One is to take the, the artistry of words themselves, not necessarily of the meaning you can construct with words, but of the, the, the beautiful sound that the physical words make mm -hmm. and put them together in a way that emphasizes that. Um, and then the other thing is to take the meaning you take the meaning and construct beautiful, poetic, you know, multifaceted meanings out of, uh, out of words. And then to take all of that and put it in the context of music. I think for me, hip-hop is poetry plus. Mm. Uh, and a lot of the hip-hop that people who aren't uh, interested in hip-hop are exposed to is pretty banal. Like, you know, it's pretty uninspired. Mm -hmm. Uh... And that gives a bad rap for, no pun intended, for hip-hop as a genre. Mm -hmm. But I think that if you look at, if you really search for, for quality music, and you, and you take the time to really think about what the music is saying, mm -hmm. you find a rich variety of, you know, commentaries on the human experience and commentaries on life in a particular, you know, in, in everyone's perspective. And by everyone's, I don't mean a universal, but more like mm -hmm. a scattered different variety. Clearly, there, there's a list of musicians, rappers, uh, hip-hop singers that inspire you. Probably a long list, but sure. throw me some names. Okay, context. sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Aesop Rock is an example of someone who I think is very intellectual uh, in his, in his hip-hop, and he cre he's very much like poetic. Mm -hmm. I think uh, most deaf also fits in mm -hmm. that category. I love him. Um, 
uh, Talib Kweli, mm-hmm. um, uh, Kendrick Lamar, and uh, Absol are all. But, and uh, the thing about the the last three or four people that I mentioned is that on the surface level, you can look at them and say, "Oh, this is just the same old, same old." Mm-hmm. Um, you know, bragging about the thug life kind of situation mm-hmm. that has no deeper meaning. But if you really analyze the lyrics and you really look mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. real significance, you will find it in abundance. Mm-hmm. Um, other rappers that I love are, you know, your classics, uh, Run DMC, Tribe mm-hmm. Called Quest, Wu-Tang Clan. That very much for me emphasizes the 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 production first of all mm-hmm. and also the beauty of the words themselves mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um and then you know there are there are all kinds of oddball people like uh brother ali i love just mm-hmm. because i think his 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 uh, delivery is so soulful snoop dog i love because his voice is just awesome mm. um and i could i could keep going forever last don't worry i'm you know Um, last question, sure. which may just, I don't know, doesn't have to conclude everything we talked about. But uh, money, resources aside, and this does not have to be the goal of your life or something you have to do. Mm-hmm. But if you had the freedom to do a project of any period of time, like what would it be? Project of any period of time. Yeah, any any project. Huh. You know? That's a tough question. Yeah. Um, Now, who would you work with? I mean, you could choose anybody. I mean, this is totally arbitrary. I love the Dalai Lama. Um, And I got to hear him talk, actually, this year, and it was a phenomenal experience. I think he's a really intelligent person Mm -hmm. who has a really beautiful perspective. I think I would work with him on... I would work with him on addressing the, and hopefully trying to find some sort of continuity between the different religions that exist in the world. Because mm-hmm. uh, I love to think that religion is about forging connections and not about causing uh, dissent mm-hmm. and conflict. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we live in a world where religion is invoked to for a lot of violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think that I would ever be able to get anywhere close to solving it, mm-hmm. but I think that working with the Dalai Lama to talk about the interaction of different religions and, you know, a, sort of a comparative religion kind mm-hmm. of uh, exploration would be interesting. Awesome. Well, I can't really top that. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. That was so much fun. Well, thank you so much for having me. Listen to more episodes of the Face World podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or visit faceworld.com. That is F E I S W O R L D, where you can find show notes, links, other tools, and resources. You can also follow me on Twitter at Face World. Until next time, thanks for listening.